1: No, daring me, no, daring in hand me, no, daring in the hand me, in the me, no, daring
2: in the hand me, daring
1: in the hand me, daring in the hand
3: me, daring
4: in
5: Gary and Yanami, welcome everyone. This is Ian on the Paradigm Shift. You're on Community Radio FM 102.1. So 2019 has been a very strange year. The capitalists have been fighting back. In the West, we have three clowns running the show, Scott Morrison, Donald Trump, and now Boris Johnson. Scott Morrison would rather, it seems, to be in the US, or at least Hawaii, than here, where even bushfires can't provide a smoke screen for the happy clapper incompetence that he shows globally there have been some setbacks in the east and in the south in latin america the capitalists have taken over in bolivia chile ecuador colombia and elsewhere cuba is still fighting the economic blockade tightened by trump bolivian president evo morales and his family barely escaped with their lives after a coup d'etat in his country the right-wing politician Janine Anez has declared herself president while waving an impossibly large Bible in her hand. So let's go to a track, Strike the Beast Hard. It's from Gaviota in 1985, Living in the Colonies, and then we'll be back to give you a, a, a full wrap on
6: 2019. <laughs> Si no te deja el hambre, pégale porque te mata, y te echan la tierra encima, canta tus mil canciones y echan dar con tus heridas, y juntos iremos al monte, a cantar luego a la vida,
7: Se quemaba la tierra. Nació un niño en la montaña. En una cuna de piel, una que lo envenenaba. Abrió sus ojos al mundo y no vio más que miseria. Tocó al infierno más crudo, donde el fuego lo atacaba. Es entre las espinas, donde el humo fue metralla. Los finales de los Andes, cobijo lo guerrillero. Un camino, el camino que el anheló Lo quiso desde chiquito Nunca se dejó de ser Americano de sangre Y siembra su voz iremos al monte a cantar luego a la vida te han dado muy poco pan por el sudor que quemaste gastaste toda tu vida en sacarle el fruto al fiero y ahora nos dará miedo porque el sol se ha puesto mal el cielo cubrió de espanto y el fuego me está ahogando Este es el camino que le dio luz a tu vida Y el hijo que te sigue, enséñale a cantar Enséñale que el hombre tiene mucho que luchar Ponle tu manta encima y encamínalo a pelear Salta sobre los andes y grita sobre la tierra Venga le duro al pie te matan y te echan la encima Canta tú mil canciones y chandar con tus heridas Y juntos iremos al monte a cantar nuevo a la vida Végale duro al pie porque así no te deja el hambre Végale porque te matan y te echan la tierra encima Canta tú mil canciones y echan andar con tus heridas
5: That was Sue Monk and Sergio Aldenate singing the beautiful Ruben Galendo's Strike the Beast Hard. The, the beast is imperialism, and the, the words go, strike the beast hard because if you don't, it will leave you hungry. Strike it because they'll kill you, something that Evo Morales found out recently. Strike it because they'll kill you, they'll cover you with earth. Sing your thousand songs and set out walking with your wounds and together we'll go to the forest to sing and then to live. Now, during 2019, there were two big working class events, as there are in any given year, particularly in Brisbane, International Women's Day and May Day. International Women's Day is, is in early March and May Day, of course, is in early May. These two days are important for the union movement because each of them grew out of the union movement, uh, both here and overseas. This year, the leader of the Waterside Workers and the Seamen, Bob Carnegie, broke with the ALP bosses and urged workers to oppose the Adani coal mine in Queensland. The bosses fought back and Carnegie was deposed as State Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia. Here is an excerpt of a speech given by Bob Carnegie showing solidarity with the mining workers however the bosses managed to overcome his opposition to coal in this speech he introduces a miner during the hutchinson's dispute which was a a couple of years ago and that was a dispute where waterside workers were sacked by text message down on the brisbane wharves so i went down there that day and this is what bob carnegie had to say uh, to the the striking workers
8: there's just one last speaker, and it's Chris Brotsky from the uh, Miners Federation. I left Chris for last because no union in this country, no organisation in this world has done um, more for fighting for workers and has seen more, more bloodshed in their industry than the Miners' Federation has. They're something very, very special in the whole part of the Australian working class history. Um, in 1991, I sent some money to a group of miners in as in rank and file seamen who um, were on strike in Pittston in in, uh, in in the Tennessee Valley in southern United States. They'd been on strike for nine months. And there was this loan union picket a woman a strike supporter four thousand workers were arrested during that dispute and she said her lone union picket it, it it was in it's been burnt in my mind it said that the struggle goes on the cause endures hope still lives and our union will never die and those words have been burnt in my mind since those days and chris you'll be the last speaker and i can't think of a finer organization to say these, to say the last words in this in this part of this dispute.
9: Uh, thanks, Bob. It's an absolute privilege um, for us to hear that. Um, we've just celebrated our hundred um, anniversary. Um, we've been around a long time. We'll be around for a long time. Um, our principles are to are to fight, are to look after others. We pride ourselves on that. As Bobby said, we. We have our tragedies, but um, they make us stronger. In 97, 98, I was alongside Bob, chained to a a railway line in the MUA dispute. And, you know, I was only 20 year old then. I've come up through the ranks and I'm here again now, you know, 17, 18 years later, um, as an official, and it makes me as proud as to be here. But um, on behalf of the 7,000 miners, is me that we represent. We will do this every time Um, and we're only a phone call away. So we'll be here, no worries. Thank you, Bob.
5: That was Chris Dobsky from the Miners' Federation and he locked on in the 1998 dispute, that was the Patrick's dispute, where all of the waterside workers in Patrick's across Australia were sacked by Chris Corrigan, the CEO of Patrick's, and he was in a conspiracy with the federal government of the day led by John Howard and the the, the aim was to get rid of the union. So, speaking about union uh, business and working class uh, issues, let's go to Alastair Hewlett with his song Dirty Old Town. Now, Alastair was a working class poet and singer, once a member of the International Socialists. And um, this song, of course, you'll recognise it, was also sung by Ewan McColl from the Pogues.
10: my love by the gasworks cropped dreamed a dream by the old canal I kissed my girl by the factory wall dirty old town dirty old town clouds are drifting across the moon cats are prowling on their beat springs agar on the streets at night the old town get the dusty old town Gasworks croft dreamed a dream by the old canal I kissed my gun by the factory wall dirty old town Yeah, a dirty old town dirty old Dirty
5: old town Thank you all very much. Well. Yes, that's um, Alistair Hewlett, who was, uh, of course, of Scottish descent, but spent um, over 25 years in Australia. Some people might remember... <laughs> He, obviously he's a folk singer, but he also was a punk and he was in the Roaring Jacks, which was a pretty famous punk band in Sydney. Uh, so he, he 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 stretched a lot. He had a wide canvas. Um, um, after he passed away in 2010, his friends and comrades set up a memorial trust to help uh, musicians and particularly those that were interested in social justice. Now, here's a song that won the 2018 Alistair Hewlett Memorial Award. It's by Terry Young and is called Fishing at Okahampton Bay. That's down in Tasmania.
3: I've
6: been fishing at Okahampton Bay the water's salty and good, and it is clear as day. And so some people have had a thought, oh, we could do some fishing of a different soil Oh, we could farm salmon at Oakhamton Bay. Tribunna needs jobs, and this is one sure way. catching some fish. They say perhaps we could be catching more. But just look at Mac Harbour in the West. All the signs are she's a waterway in distress. Low levels of oxygen, high ammonia and nitrates, blue-green algae blooms and bacterial outbreaks. Not to mention all the antibiotics and pesticides they need to just keep the water's bad there's just no making it good again once the water's bad there's just no making it good again and the water's shallow in Oak, Camden Bay the crab's not gonna just get washed away but some people have Jobs of a different song
5: Was Terry Young with uh, fishing at Oakhampton Bay, the winner of the 2018 Songs for Social Justice Award. The the song, as you could hear, was it's critical of that of the giant salmon fish farm set up at Oakhampton Bay on the east coast of Tasmania. Apparently, these big salmon farms they really expend more. Uh, fish than they produce. It's sort of a, a top of the of the uh, the food chain kind of situation where they they're killing a whole lot of fish in order to feed the protein to the salmon, and then they they sell the salmon at a big price somewhere in, in international markets. So, so on the environmental front, um, Extinction Rebellion made a big splash in 2019 with an international crusade against the burning of fossil fuels. Locally, laws were introduced to stop Extinction Rebellion from coming into the Brisbane CBD. Now, this was an initial setback for the movement but may prove to be a plus in 2020 as people are finding ways around the lock-on laws. Politically, the fight is now on two fronts. There's the environmental blockades and uh, that's uh, Camp Bimbi up in near where the, the coal is being exported, they're blockading the trains that are bringing the coal to, to the ships. And then, of course, there's the democratic rights campaign for the right to protest against climate change. So the environmental struggle is in full swing, as shown in this report by Andy, who is interviewing, interviewing Hannah from from Extinction Rebellion.
0: There's been, among people, I guess, from uh, leftist political tradition, there have been uh, a lot of support of Extinction Rebellion, but some critiques. Obviously, it's a very new movement. Um, What's been the response to just some of those critiques that have been uh, put up against Extinction Rebellion?
11: Um, Well, XRSEQ doesn't have a formal response to those critiques. From my personal perspective, that's all I can speak from. And I think um, it's a matter of this is a movement that is trying to mobilise a mass portion of the population. A mass portion of the population doesn't already have extremely radical politics. So it's incredible that those people are getting active and getting involved, and the role of Extinction Rebellion has to then be to have like educational platforms and be bringing intersectionality and all the other ways in which the system is broken um, to those people so that they can then adapt. We're not going to bring everybody on side and have radical change that we need for survival if we only accept people that already have the most radical politics out there.
0: Um, So you've been up on... uh, up at Camp Binby the front line campaigning at Sedana, you spent a, a quite a, a long stint there, uh, what do you think are the comparative virtues of ex- organising Extinction Rebellion in the city or being on a, on the front line trying to stop a, a coal mine in the traditional sense of a, a blockade camp?
11: Uh, I think both are definitely, definitely have their values and definitely have their downfalls. Um, the direct attack of the industry at the coal mine is of course an incredible thing and something that I think is super important. Um, I'd say counter to that, and the reason why I'm doing extinction rebellion activism now is that we can't just stop on campaign. We're not at that point in history where it's um, about protecting an area. We need radical changes. We need total global infrastructure overhaul, energy infrastructure overhaul, like within the next very short period of time, 12 months or so. Um, so, like from my perspective, it needs to be a social movement pushing for change, not a not a campaign-based greenies mobilised to stop this mine movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
11: Towards the end of 2019,
0: we've seen, maybe the first time ever, some of those right-wing elements of the media talking about the need for climate action with the, the bushfires and response to that. Uh, is this a, a change? What, what do you think about this kind of, the way that discussion about climate change has changed in the mainstream?
11: I think that bushfires definitely have been a massive wake-up call, but also Extinction Rebellion, I, I think, does deserve a degree of credit for pushing the words climate emergency into the mainstream consciousness including that of politicians um, it's about acting on those changes that I guess is the next hurdle but I do think I do think we are you know starting to really truly feel the effects of climate change even in extremely privileged countries and that is hopefully going to kickstart the very slow change.
0: 2019, it's been a, a big year. Uh, Extinction Rebellion, school strikes, bushfires. What do you think for 2020? Uh, if we're going to have meaningful climate action, what the Extinction Rebellion and the uh, climate movement as a whole, what do we need to do? I
11: think we need to continue with our public-facing actions, getting people involved, pushing this on the agenda because it can't be something that's ignored any longer if we have a chance of survival. And I think we then need to, like, once we've mobilised it people target that power at the corporations that are killing us so have really effective targeted actions at things like the fossil fuel economy the fossil sorry the fossil fuel industry within australia the export which is the largest in the world and be having really successful blockades of that destructive industry
0: what do you think, um, there's a lot of talk about crisis and uh, whether we've gone far enough, what do you think are our chances of building a movement that has uh, the ability to make the change we need?
11: I think that we're certainly not going to achieve it if we don't do anything. Um, regardless of our chances, I don't think that the decision of whether or not we'll be successful um, is to be made by those privileged people that have done most to contribute to the climate crisis and will feel its effects the least. From my perspective, as one of those people it's my responsibility to try for as long as i can Um, for me to tap out when i'm not going to be the one to feel the brunt of the effects first is entirely irresponsible and not my place
4: how things been going mate how was your day
5: Existential threats that are going on down here. Faralisa, she sang her song about the existential threat that is climate change. And there's another existential threat, which is the ongoing wars against terror, or should they be called wars of terror? They're conducted by the Coalition of the Willing, which includes Australia, of course, US, Great Britain. No stranger to imperialism, Australia is conducting wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria although you wouldn't know it from the reporting by mainstream media. During 2019, Donald Trump, the President of the United States, nearly got us into another war against Iran. This may still happen given the genocidal policies of the US administration. They're responsible for over a million dead in Iraq uh, and counting. And, of course, there was an uprising just a couple of weeks before Christmas in Iraq um, where people just can't get enough services and enough to eat, so there. there's some big demonstrations ongoing there in Baghdad and elsewhere. There aren't any international war crime charges against the people who sent us there, you know, Blair, the Bushes, the, the Howards, all on fake uh, information, of course. They said that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case. So, um, well, Congress has impeached... Donald Trump for seeking assistance from a foreign power, Ukraine, and to help him roll his... They they did that so he could roll his political opponents at home. But that won't come to much as the upper house, the US Senate, will unimpeach Trump early in 2020. Meanwhile, his followers are growing because he can argue that he's an underdog. He's an outlier. He's been pursued by the American ruling class elite, off the back of his, this impeachment by the Democrats, they've played into his hands. Things are looking up for Trump, as they would be for Boris if it weren't for Brexit and for Morrison if weren't it weren't for the bushfires that are ravaging the country. Half of the UK don't want Brexit and an overwhelming majority of Scots don't want to be part of Britain at all. So it is likely that Scotland will secede in the coming future and the hope is that Ireland will be unified as well so you won't have Northern South Ireland uh, Ireland anymore. So that's 100 years after the Easter uprising in 1916 which tore Ireland apart. Um, how does that old Sinead O'Connor song go? Uh, this is a rebel song. Don't be cold, Englishman. Oh, please talk to me, Englishman. What good will shutting me out get done? Meanwhile, crazies are killing our sons. Oh, listen, Englishman. In 2019, we also saw a campaign uh, from the uh, University of Queensland to try to keep hold of its heritage in the union complex, a complex where 4 Z came from, where you had the Chanel Theatre with their iconic films. Um, we had a forum area where there was a lot, just about every political movement in Queensland's recent history is, has had some place in that forum and uh, it was generated from it. So let's go now to one of the leaders of that campaign, Jeff Rickett, to hear what what it was all about. So this is Jeff Rickett from Save the University of Queensland Union Complex. It's twenty minutes to one. You're on the paradigm shift, and we're doing a wrap on 2019. Why does the university senate wish to demolish the University of Queensland Union Complex and the Chanel Theatre that were built in the 50s, 60s, and early 1970s? I think
2: there's two two aspects to it. There's, there's two broad reasons that they want to proceed with that plan one is pedagogical and the other is political i think the pedagogical reason stems from the fact that there was a there was a period in in um, in the university's history where the university administration and the and the state that backed university education
7: saw
3: the role of the university to be about creating
2: uh, an elite body of of people who had a certain kind of set of social uh, and cultural skills and they felt that a a large part of those skills could be acquired not just in the laboratories and lecture halls but actually in the extracurricular activities that the students organised themselves and the student unions in universities had an important role to play in that so You actually see in the development of student unionism at University of Queensland, for example, that the university administration was quite keen to encourage that, um, as was the state government. And the reason for that was that they actually saw value in student unions as a vehicle for organising extracurricular activities, which would... Uh, helped to create what they regarded or what they used to call the, the whole person. So education at university was about developing the whole man or the whole woman. It wasn't just about vocational skills. And I think what's changed pedagogically is that that notion of the university as a place where you developed um, a, a well-rounded sense of uh, education has basically collapsed Um, again because of the the shifting needs of, of capital. So now there's no longer that need for the extracurricular activities to serve that, I guess, more nobler purpose. And when the University of Queensland now talks about the student experience, it's simply talking about recreational needs and recuperative needs away from the sites of learning. So in that sense, it no longer needs the facilities provided to student unions uh, for those traditional um, purposes. So I think there's that pedagogical reason. The other is political, and that's simply the fact that in the 60s, 70s and 80s, university administrations, and it should be said student union uh, executives, uh, saw an explosion in student activism that went well beyond the bounds that they regarded as acceptable. And so they learned a lesson from that, and that lesson was if you create spaces like the UQ Forum and the Refect, where large groups of students can congregate to discuss political matters and mobilise politically, it can be a dangerous thing. So I think um, along with the changing pedagogical needs of the university, uh, there's also a political agenda, and that is basically to eliminate these um, areas where students can congregate and mobilise. And it's a good opportunity now because student union or student activism more generally is at a low ebb, so it's it's a good time to strike.
5: I sent you a photograph of the University of Queensland Forum area. The photograph was taken in 1970 during an anti-Vietnam War campaign and it's got a leafy area where there are a lot of people congregated outside the refectory and there's a man with a megaphone but behind him there is a sign that talks about the construction underway as a commercial redevelopment of the uq union complex which includes the addition of the chanel theater and an extension to the refectory that was quite a large extension which included offices downstairs for a bank and stuff. How did this commercial redevelopment differ from the UQ Senate's recent proposals to redevelop the site to provide student-based retail food and beverage opportunities and collaboration plazas? Yes,
2: well, the original plan for that redevelopment or uh, additional development in in that period that you're referring to when the, when they were planning for the Chanel and extension of the refectory and also what they were referring to as the commercial centre. The original plan was actually far more extensive than what ended up being developed. The commercial centre element actually had a lot of similarities to what is being proposed today by the university administration, but it was actually scaled back for financial reasons and, and the full the full commercial side of that redevelopment didn't go ahead, although some aspects of it did. But even so, the the fundamental difference between what was being done back then and what is being proposed now is that the development back then was initiated by and led by the University of Queensland Union executive. Um, And they may well have had their own particular agenda uh, around that, but ultimately that was a, um, a, a student body accountable to the student population, the members of that union. So that is a fundamentally different proposition to the one that we're facing today, where the university was basically no effective consultation, with the student union or the student body or indeed anyone else has determined that the entire complex will be demolished and replaced with um, a building that provides services and retail outlets. So whatever criticisms one might have had of the student union executive back in 1969 and the reasons that they had for the commercial proposal then, um, it did have the merit of being a proposal Put forward and controlled by the the student union uh, itself, a body that was actually democratically accountable to the student population, uh, a totally different situation to what we're confronting now.
5: That was Jeff Ricketts from the Save the UQ Union uh, Complex campaign, and unfortunately, we heard only just a couple of weeks ago that the Heritage Council of Queensland decided to reject their application for a heritage listing, which would have saved the complex. There's a bit of a backstory to that because the departmental recommendation was that that they saved the Chanel Theatre because of its heritage value, but the board of 11 people uh, voted against that and... So the, um, the it's all the ball is now in the university's court, and maybe there'll have to be a direct action campaign on that front. Another campaign in 2019 was the "Bring Julian Assange Home" campaign. Now there was a forum organised in early December, which included Julian's father, John Shipton, and an anti-war activist, Kieran O'Reilly. They were interviewed by. Uh, two journalists from the independent australia website dave david donovan and michelle pinney now here is uh, that interview with some questions from the audience about what this campaign is striving for and what it means you're on you're 12 minutes to 1 and you're on the paradigm shift and we're going to go ahead with um, the 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 interview with jo- john shipton and Kieran O'Reilly. Welcoming
2: to the stage, Julian Assange's father, John Sutton. <laughs> the, the second person I'll welcome to the stage is probably someone who doesn't need any introduction to a West Indian, the West End audience, I'm sure, is Kieran O'Reilly. So, the... There will be two journalists conducting these interviews. They are both from the Independent Australia website. The first one is uh, David Donovan, who was born in 1970 and has vast experience uh, in in journalism. Um, Kieran, you've become famous for, among other things, your non-violent anti-war protests, um, for which, uh, for defacing and disabling war aircraft, American war aircraft, you, like Julian, served some time in prison. Uh, I think 12 months in the prison in prison in the US. Is that right? 13. 13. Yeah.
9: Yeah. Just, um, just wondering
2: whether you could explain what the conditions were like for you and what uh, what it was like.
12: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this country and also acknowledge. Um, the war of genocide against them and a war that continues which is convenient the an explanation for 30 percent of the prison population in this country being indigenous and also acknowledge the war against the people of iraq and that's the context in which chelsea manning mm. finds herself back in prison and julian in a british prison and i actually coincidentally happened to be there the first day of that war we were at the pentagon hiroshima day and um margaret thatcher and george Bush senior turned up and announced the sanctions on iraq and uh, then we had the drive-by Gulf War I where they dropped eight Hiroshima's on Iraq. And then we had the collapse of the anti-war movement. And then we had 10 years of sanctions where million children were killed. And then we had the invasion. And then we had the occupation. And now there are thousands of US troops being sent back there as we speak. Um, prisons are designed to, for every prisoner uh, to demoralize and defeat you. And especially for political prisoners, get you to recant. And in my situation, I was sentenced to New York and put on Con Air and flown across the country through Oklahoma to El Paso, Texas, and then shipped out into the outback and put in a, a very overcrowded jail. I was the only Gringo in the jail, only representative of the master race, and uh, only white boy. And uh, that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> and so there were 24 of us in a cage. Um, the cage was about this wide, and then six cages welded together in one room. There were three prison officers who disappear at the first sign of trouble and it would take about forty minutes for the right squad to come back in. So it was a very violent uh, and boring uh, place. And the only thing, the first month I had a lot of harassment, low level assault, uh, harassment by the prison officers and other and, uh, young gang members and that disappeared once I started getting correspondence in. And uh, the, the staff backed off immediately, not feeling I had reach on the outside And I got popular with Mexican stamp collectors and kind of built my popular base from there. So I really encourage you to write to Julian. Um, It sends a message to the staff that he is not forgotten. And it also... I've been with Julian in the embassy when he opens... Uh, letters and it's, it's uh, I mean the biggest thing for a prisoner is knowing your out date and Julian for nine years, it was nine years on the 7th of December that he's first taken the bond. Secondly, and I was talking to a Guardian featured writer and they said, he said no, it's uh, more serious than that. Journalists value being the gatekeepers of secrets. Who gets to know, how much they get to know, when they get to know. And WikiLeaks comes along with the primary data and goes, you work it out, you know. And then, but more seriously, I think... Uh, possibly the U.S. Grand Jury are more than just Julian, and some of those might be Guardian journalists. So the attitude of, we'll give you the head of Julian Assange if you leave our boys and girls alone, I think, is a possibility. And that was one of the reasons the judge judge argued that the indictment shouldn't be opened. It was a secret indictment until they've played it, and he argued that they still might be pursuing other people. And it's interesting that Somerset Bean, from Adelaide, uh, the the DOJ had just asked Google for all his stuff, And he's basically the graphics guy who puts out posters and stuff, so I don't know how broad the net's going
2: to be. Uh, Kieran, while you're speaking, what similarities do you see between your situation, your case, and Julian's event?
12: Yeah, I think, um, you know, Uh,
13: Julian is in a a dire circumstance. um, He's lost 15 uh, kilos. that's weight, very skinny uh, He's uh, in solitary confinement, sort of, like 22 hours a day. Um, he, whenever he, whenever I go to visit or anybody goes to visit, the hallways are cleared, and Julian's brought down in, through empty, long, empty hallways into the meeting room. Um, there's about, usually about a hundred other prisoners and their visitors in the meeting room. You, there's cameras everywhere in the ceiling and uh, each prisoner wears a yellow band. Um, you have to speak like this so that you can't be lift, lip read if you have, want to exchange private information. You know, if I ask Julian, how are you? Um, or any other personal information, you know, his children or so on. Um, So, after nearly 10 years of ceaseless psychological pressure, in an increasing intensity and trajectory in the last two years, where every single move and voice and action he made in the embassy, every single one, Nothing. So the toilet, everything, the ladies' toilet had microphones in it because uh, the lawyers and Julian would occasionally have their uh, conferences there so that they wouldn't be overheard. But they installed a a microphone behind the uh, paper towels. So you can imagine the effect of that year after year. And towards the very end, rude and aggressive security men. Uh, Lawyers uh, given permission to visit and sent away. um, Food forgotten to be delivered. It's their responsibility to feed him. He can't go out. Uh, He had an abscess on his tooth uh, and his lawyers wrote to the UK government that could he cross their land to go to the dentist base you come outside you'll be arrested so you can just get you know a picture of the ceaseless persecution in particular in particular delicate ways the Julian underwent, detailed ways after five years the room he was in he knew every crack every thread falling off the curtains every a piece of paint peeling off, uh, a bird landing on the window as a friend, you know. So, not good circumstance. I,
12: I think here in the Shadow Foreign Minister of People of Integrity, when Julian was dragged from the embassy, said this he shouldn't be in the United States. Records. I mean, we'll say he got deported to Australia, then we'd have to go on the front foot very quickly to defend him. Ian Kerr, Community
5: Radio, what he was said. Yeah. The banner behind you uh, says bring Julian home. Now I'm, I'm wondering if there's anyone here who seriously thinks that Australia given its track record is a good place uh, for someone like Julian to be afforded
8: uh, democratic rights and human rights. Australia on, on both sides of, of politics have um, never lifted a finger
5: to help him and I'm wondering whether people think that he might indeed be safer in Great Britain, given that there's election coming up, um, and there's maybe a remote possibility that Jeremy Corbyn would get in, and that I think he probably would do the right thing by Julian.
13: Thank you. We can only do one thing at a time. First thing is bring him home, so he can spend a bit of time with his family and kids, have a cup of coffee out on the... Sidewalk, we'll watch the passing parade and breathe the air in. The next thing, if they try and exodite in, well, we'll fight that too. And we'll win. All
12: right. Uh, my is Sean O'Reilly. I just want to ask uh, anybody who could give me an answer in regard to the um, Australian sort of journalism fraternity, because I've written to a number of high-profile journalists, the chief editor of the uh, Guardian Australia, the president of Australia, the National Press Club, um, they had no response from them at all. And in fact, they've put up comments to articles they've published and have had those comments taken down. Um, I wonder if after the uh, presentation to the National Press Club last week from the Editor-in-Chief of WikiLeaks, has, has the Australian fraternity of journalists changed their response, or lack of response? Um, and could someone explain to me why it is to have had such silence? Australian journalists, with a few exceptions. The often, as I struck my older brother on the way of the world. Um, the big mistake we make often in social movements is thinking that the media is some kind of objective social service, when they're actually corporations, they're profit driven and run by very powerful people. I mean, what's been a, such a shame is the uh, campaign about press freedom uh, in Australia, and not including Julian Assange's persecution as an Australian journalist. And also, just with Peter Greste saying, um, uh, saying that ju- Julian isn't a journalist. I mean, journalism is it's not ordination, you know. It's, it's something you do. We're all journalists. It's a basic right uh, to, to be able to write and reflect on things that are happening around you. And uh, yeah, that will lead us perhaps,
5: and we know it. That was the Bring Julian Home campaign and we listened there to uh, anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly and John Shipton, who is Julian Assange's dad. We're just about out of time now. Um, there's one final thing that I'd like to um, to say and that is that political activists in Brisbane and, and really around the country were really rocked in in November by the premature death of aboriginal leader sam watson it it, it was just a a shock for everyone to have someone go so early who has been the heart and soul of the aboriginal and progressive struggle in this in this town and um, it it it, it, all i can really say is my condolences to his family and to the the wider aboriginal community and we hope that um you know, we can take up where Sam left off. So I'd like to um, pay my respects through a song. It's Eulogy for a Black Person, and it's by Kev
3: Cut-
1: For mud, Where the stars can see my soul Take me where them trees stand tall By the waters in the river bend Let me face the rising sun Commend my spirit to the wind Make no monuments mortal crowns Don't speak my name again when you lay me down Where the forest blooms In the land that's seen no plow, Where the fragrance on the western wind Carried from every springtime flower Give me peace and give me rest Lay me down on the mountain crest Bury me softly without a sound let us scrub back across that mound Make no monuments of mortal Don't speak my name again when you lay me down Bury me quick and bury me deep Without no coffee, no shrouded sheet, yeah I nurture the lands we Give me joy and give me soul Carry the struggle wide and long Do not grieve and do not weep. Mortal memories are all we keep, yeah Make no monuments of mortal crowns